nation longed for deliverance, a leader to free them from tyranny. They knew the story well. God would send a mighty warrior, but they never expected a defenseless child. It was said the government would be upon his shoulders, but so would a criminal's cross. He would take the throne of his father David, but first he must pass through the veil of death. Each Christmas, we remember the unconventional arrival of this king, and we too know the story pretty well. We see the wise men on our Christmas cards tracing their westward journey. But these are Gentiles. They've come to worship a king for all people. Each year we sing of shepherds watching flocks by night, but these aren't exactly royalty. They remind us that this king lifts up the lowly. At Christmas, we celebrate a child's birth. But this infant is also the eternal king who spoke creation into existence. And he still speaks. I also want to welcome you to our Christmas Eve service. Uh, I'm Pastor Andrew. This is my fifth Christmas season here at Stony Brook Fellowship. And as I was thinking about it, I realized that I have not had five similar Christmas experiences at all. They've all been very different. In 2019, when I began, our Christmas Eve gathering was a small family of 40 in the ministry center. And the year after that, there was no gathering at all. We had pre-recorded a video service, and then we could meet again with restrictions, and that was weird. And then we could meet without restrictions, and that was great. And now here we are, meeting again freely, but on, on Christmas Eve morning at 10.30 a.m. We're doing what we can to make it feel as Christmas eve as possible. Uh, but I've been grateful for each and every one of these five Christmas experiences with you as a church family. And we want to do exactly what that video said we're about. We want to ensure that as Christmas comes and we have all of our traditions and these things that we love to do, spending time with friends and with family, or maybe just time off work to rest and relax, that we also focus not just on the message of this season, but also really continuing to dig into the Word of God. And the truth that was given and spoken through Jesus continues to speak to us through Scripture today. And we've really been doing this all Advent long. This isn't a new thing. For those of you who have been here over the course of the last month, we've been tracing the titles and the names of Jesus given by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9.6. We've talked about Jesus as our wonderful counselor, as the mighty God, everlasting Father. And today we are going to declare the truth and learn more about what it means for Jesus to be the Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. When we think of a word like peace, I'm sure that many different definitions will come to our mind, will come to your mind. And when we look at what was written in the Hebrew all those years ago by Isaiah, peace means something perhaps a little bit more than what we would define it as today. The Hebrew word means wholeness, completeness, well-being. It really means that, that everything is put together rightly, and we can think about this individually. We'll say, yes, I am at peace. I am at peace. Things are, are complete in my life. I have a sense of wholeness and I have well-being in my relationship with God. I have this peace that is given by the Prince of Peace, Jesus. 
And we can also think about this relationally. We are at peace. We together are complete and we are whole and we have well-being in our relationship with one another. Again, because of the peace given by Jesus ushered in all those many years in the past. We are at peace with one another. And it's this relational focus that I think we are going to really highlight and spend more time in during our service here this morning. As the Prince of Peace, Jesus would usher in this kingdom that would be defined as peace. And once again, as we've gone through these different titles, we've acknowledged that this is a messianic prophecy. Isaiah was given this uh, knowledge by God uh, that he was only maybe partly aware of, but God was working through this prophet to, to look ahead to the Messiah, to the anointed one, that person that would be the deliverer of his people, of the children of Israel. And this Messiah would establish a kingdom. He would be a king and he would establish a kingdom that would last forever, that wouldn't be temporary as the kingdom of Israel had proven to be, but would be one that would last and last and last. And so these titles were meaningful descriptors for us as readers of the word to understand what type of king will this Messiah be? And what type of kingdom will he bring here on earth? And perhaps there is no greater descriptor of what type of king and what type of kingdom than that of peace. In fact, I would go so far as to say that peace is one of the ultimate goals of the kingdom of God. This is one of the hallmarks of what makes the Lord's kingdom so much different than ours. It's one of those things that when we lack this peace, this wholeness and completeness in our lives that we long for more than anything else. It's also one of those things that the kingdom of the world around us seemingly wants to strive for but never quite lives up to achieving. This is what we mean by peace. And so we have a prince of peace who is ushering in a kingdom of peace. And there are two significant relationships. Again, having this relational focus, there are two significant relationships in which we experience this peace that Jesus brought on that very first Christmas. And that first most important relationship now is peace between us and God. Jesus came in order to make peace and bring peace between us and God. And in fact, when you open up the Word of God and when you read from cover to cover, you will find that it is not just a collection of books or a collection of stories. It is one story, one true story about the living God and the story of creation in light of the living God. In fact, we can sum it up by saying this is the story of creation and of the fall and of redemption. And so with both of these relationships that we have, that Jesus brings us peace, there is a big picture and there is a small picture. And the big picture of the Prince of Peace is that Jesus came to make peace with God and all of creation. It's, it's the same story. And so at the very beginning, when there was nothing except for this eternal God, God spoke and everything sprang into existence. There was chaos and God spoke and he brought order. And as he created and ordered the entire universe, he created human beings to be uniquely made in his own image. 
This was the, the crowning achievement of creation. And part of this uniqueness of being image bearers of God was that humankind had the ability to have a relationship with God. And we see this play out in the Garden of Eden, where God, after creating, would come and he would walk in the garden with his people. And there was no obstacles or animosity between God and humankind. It was perfect because it was created perfect. And yet it didn't take too long. You don't have to read too many different chapters in this book to find that that perfection did not last. Human beings were deceived, not just by the serpent. They were deceived by their own hearts, their pride, their selfish ambition. As human beings, we wanted to be like God. And so Adam and Eve broke that only rule that God had given them to eat. Uh, they ate this forbidden fruit, and they did it because they wanted to be like God. They wanted to, to have their own ability to do what they saw fit to do. And in so doing, they not only disobeyed God, but they disregarded, to him, disregarded him. They acted hostile, in a hostile fashion towards God. And then that relationship and that peace between God and humankind was broken. And as we continue to uncover page after page and chapter after chapter and book after book in the Word of God, you will see all the many different ways that God was patiently at work putting His plan into place to restore the peace that humankind had broken. And it began with this covenant to Abraham and the children of Israel that, that God would choose them, not just to give them a special status, but He would choose them as a light to the world so that all the watching world around would see Israel and know that God was at work restoring humankind and creation to himself. And yet this was not perfect. The law was imperfect. Israel was imperfect at keeping the law. And so then God sent his son Jesus to perfectly uphold the law, to fulfill it to every stroke of the pen, to be Israel in its fullness and completeness and when Jesus came, he didn't just enter this world as a child, but he paid the price on the cross to die for the penalty of sin, to die for the hostility of humanity towards God, so that through his sacrifice and his resurrection, he would make peace with all of creation. And then we go right to the very end of the book, to Revelation, and we get this picture that John was given. And, and we see that all of creation has now found its peace in Jesus, and it ends up in much the same state that God created it in the first place. This is what we read in Revelation 21, verses 3 to 4. And John is given this vision of a new heaven and new earth, and this is what he sees. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And what this picture is, is of the Garden of Eden once more, of things recreated, of everything brought back to where it was intended to be. And just as God could walk and talk and be in relationship with his people at the beginning of creation, so, true, so too will that be true at the end when Jesus comes again and ushers in this complete fulfillment of the kingdom of peace between God and his people. That's a big story. We're talking about creation to eternity future. 
We're talking about peace being made, not just with me and you, but with all of humanity over all course of time and all of creation. And we can get overwhelmed by the enormity of the story that Scripture gives us. That's the big picture. But there's also a small picture, one that needs to be crystal clear for us on this Christmas Eve. Because this is not just a story that matters to all of creation for all of eternity. It matters to me and it matters to you personally. Because Jesus came to make peace with everyone, that means he also came to make peace with you and God. He came to restore that all-important relationship personally for you here today. I love the way that Paul describes it in Romans 5, 8, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And it says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not a very long verse. Not very wordy, but so much truth packed into that. And what is the truth? The truth is that Christ died for you. But what really makes this verse come alive to me is when Jesus did this. When did he die for you? Did he wait for you to ask for forgiveness? Did he wait for you to repent? Did he wait for you to try to make peace with him? No, Jesus died for you while we were still sinners while we were still hostile to God, while we were still caught in our pride and in our selfish ambition, when we were still more focused on ourselves, when we were considered enemies to God, that's when he laid down his life for us, while we were still sinners. Jesus made peace first. He took the first step. He initiated. He did everything that was necessary to restore and make peace. He didn't wait for us. I think that matters hugely. Just to be very honest with you, uh, over the past couple weeks, I was really struggling, uh, feeling anxious, uh, uh, feeling a lot of different things. And one of the ways in which I was struggling leading up to Christmas was I was struggling with truly internalizing the promise that Jesus has forgiven me. So is it okay if I, as your pastor, admit that I am in need of forgiveness? Is that okay? Jesus has needed to forgive me from time to time. That's happened. If you want more information, talk to my wife. <laughs> She's needed to forgive me for time to time too. But there are these moments in which something that I am especially ashamed about in my past rears its head again. And there is a deception, a deception that's whispered in my ear. It says, how could you? Do you not still feel ashamed? Would Jesus really forgive you for that thing? And I'm a pastor, and I've got degrees, and I've, I've read this book a few different times. And I can point to you passages that will show you that Jesus says, I've forgiven you. And I know it here, but sometimes I struggle with that information really going down into the depths of my heart. I know it's true, but can I believe it's true? Can I trust that it's true? Can I live like Jesus has forgiven me totally, fully, and completely, completely? And it is a, a promise and a verse like Romans 5, 8 that really reminds me, not just in my head, but in my heart, Jesus didn't wait for me to say I was sorry. He didn't wait for me to quit feeling ashamed. He didn't wait for me to figure this out. He died for me first. He forgave me first. He made peace with me first. So as I was preparing to share with you this Sunday, that verse hit home in a way that was very real and true. And so what sin? What shame, what brokenness, what doubt, what frustrations are you bringing with you during this Christmas? I would point you in the same direction that God pointed me. 
I took the first step. I made peace with you. And it all began with the baby in the manger. And that is that first significant relationship. We, we have to have peace with God. And yet there is that second relationship, I think, is, is very much vital as well. And that is that Jesus came to make, make peace with others. Not just this vertical relationship, us and God, but it flows out into all the relationships we have with those around us. And once again, when we think about peace being made in our relationship with others, we think of that big picture and we think of the small picture. Well, what is that big picture? If you ever watch a beauty pageant, it's what they all talk about when these contestants get up and they bat their eyelashes and then they're asked, what would you want more than anything else? And they will say, peace on earth. That's what I want. That's the answer you're looking for. That will give me all the brownie points I need to win this competition, right? Peace on earth. We want everyone, everyone to be at peace with one another. It's not just beauty contestants. This is something that we have seen governments promise and we've talked about in our schools and we're trained to achieve as children and there's generations and generations we've been working on this peace thing. And so one would think that after all these thousands of years of trying to work on peace, we'd be pretty good at it by now, right? We think of the big picture. And I think it's been very disheartening for all of us over the uh, the past two years to look at these wars that have sprung up in Ukraine and in Israel. And when I look at those wars, those are the ones that have my attention more fully and completely, even though I know there's wars in other areas of the world. I look at them, and that's my first reaction. Haven't we figured this out by now? Why aren't we any better at this? I mean, it's 2023. Shouldn't we be at peace with one another? Shouldn't war be a a primal thing of the past? But of course not. Of course we haven't learned it well. Kingdom of the world is not one that's been defined by peace. In fact, if you take a history class, if you go to and take a course on history, we have conveniently organized human history in empires and wars. That's how we know what time period we're talking about, who was in charge of the world, and what war was fought to get them there. We have organized our history based on empires and wars. We lack peace with others. And it doesn't matter how enlightened we think we are or how good we are at this, we still know that the world is crying out for peace. And peace on earth is not going to be achieved by beauty pageant contestants or training good citizens in school or diplomacy on the world stage. Peace on on earth is only possible through the kingdom of the Prince of Peace. But the kingdom that this Prince of Peace was born into this world to usher in is one that is defined by peace. It is one of the things that makes it stand out against the kingdom of the world. And this is always the way that it's meant to be. Isaiah 2.4, just a few chapters earlier than Isaiah 9 that we've been focusing on, there's another messianic prophecy, and this is what it says. The Messiah shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Has that kingdom come yet fully and completely? I look around at the world, and I say, no, not yet. But this is the nature of the kingdom of the Messiah, the nature of the kingdom of the Prince of Peace. 
And we get yet another glimpse of this in Revelation 21. Just a little further on in the passage that we read together already, John is still getting this vision of the new heaven and the new earth. And part of this vision is of the city of the new Jerusalem. And this is what he sees. Oh, I forgot what I was going to read. Verses 24 and 26. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So at the end, when Jesus has returned and this kingdom of peace is ushered in its fullness, we see that there will no longer be any war. Well, how do we know? Well, Revelation gives us a beautiful picture of a reality. And we don't have fortified cities anymore, but those who are listening to these words would have been very familiar with the fact that you needed walls around your city. And you needed gates inside those walls. So at a time of war or during the night or whenever there was anything that was unsettled or seemingly hostile, you could shut those gates and you could keep the good guys in and you could keep the bad guys out. But the new Jerusalem, when Jesus comes again and this kingdom of peace is is here in its fullness, the gates will never be shut. They will never be shut because there is no more war. There is no more violence. There will truly be peace with the nations. That's the big picture. That's the kingdom that we long for. And yet that can be an overwhelmingly large picture. All the nations are heading towards a time of peace. What does this mean for us? There is a small picture that is equally true. If Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and he is ushering in a kingdom of peace, then we as citizens of this kingdom and as followers of Jesus must be peacemakers. We must be peacemakers. Not optional. Not if we feel like it. Not if we believe that it's achievable. We do it because that is what Jesus has done for us. And while we are still waiting for the kingdom of peace to be here in complete entirety, we are still called to make as much of this kingdom a reality here on earth as possible. And it's something that Jesus taught all of us to do when he taught his followers to pray. In just a minute, I want us to say together, recite together a version of the Lord's Prayer. It's going to be from Matthew chapter 6. I believe the words will be on the screen behind you. Uh, Just make sure you read the words because this version might be slightly different than the version that you are used to. We're going to recite the Lord's Prayer together. Then I will uh, explain a bit more of why this is so important in the small picture of peace. Let's read Matthew 6, 26, oh sorry, yeah, Matthew 6, verses uh, 9 and following. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There you go. That's all that's in that. (laughs) You all want to keep going, didn't you? Want some more? That's okay. We're going to stop there. Why is this important? Well, if the kingdom of God is defined by peace, then we pray these words, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are we asked to pray for? What are we asked to live for? That peace would become more and more a reality here, just as it is perfectly a reality in heaven, and one day will be perfectly a reality on earth when the two meet We are called to be people who ask for and who live for this peace to be a reality 
in our midst. And so this is not just a big picture idea. It matters to us day to day, each and every day that we live. What do we do to make this world a more peaceful place? How do we live? How do we act? How do we react? How do we relate to other people? How do we mend fences? We've been told to pray for this. We've been told to live for this. And when we combine these two small picture moments, what Jesus did to bring peace between us and God, what did he do? He made the move first. So how do we bring peace to others? We do the same thing. Peacemaking is proactive. It is proactive. I know that Christmas time is, is often a great time of, of, of fellowship with our church family. It's a great time to spend more time with, with our family. There's many people here that have family members that are brought to church. Good on you. That's a, I'll give you a gold star for that. Uh, and you're going to spend time with them this whole weekend, and it's great. And there's also so many of us that have friends and family uh, where the relationship is bent, it's twisted, it's broken, uh, the, the ridges are burnt, the ships are burned, whatever metaphor you want it feels like those relationships are done. And I know that, as we talked about, the many different types of Christmas Eve services we've had here at Stony Brook have brought us through all of those different trials that were really hard on relationships. And the number one thing that I think we need to remember today is that if there is a, a relationship in your life that's strained or broken, that as a follower of the Prince of Peace, we do not have the luxury of washing our hands of that relationship and saying, oh, it's done. Oh, the ball's in their court. When they come to me, then I'll be open to mending the fences. When they ask for forgiveness, then I'm going to reach out to them and then I'll own my part. Jesus didn't wait for you. He moved first. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We follow his example by being proactive. And so I would encourage you, this Christmas, think of a relationship that is rocky or bent or broken and make the first move. Take the first step. Do what you can to be a peacemaker in that situation. But of course, you need to have healthy boundaries. Of course, there can be toxic relationships. And so I think proactive peacemaking can look like all of us can, in a healthy way this summer. It can look like this. Number one, you need to pray for those that you do not currently have peace with. No matter what they've done to you, no matter how it may be harmful or hard to be in their presence, you can and should always pray for that person. Always pray for those people. I'm not talking about those passive-aggressive prayers. Okay, dear Jesus, pray for John. You know John's wrong. I pray that you would change John's mind. John needs to believe what I believe and think, no, I'm not talking about that type of prayer. Pray for the other person. Pray for their well-being their wholeness, their completeness, the peace that need, they need in their life this Christmas season. Pray for that for them. And pray that, that God would be at work in their lives, softening their hearts so that this relationship could also potentially be restored. So you, you begin to make peace proactively by praying for someone that you're strained with. Number two, you need to be proactive by forgiving someone. And again, they may not ever ask for forgiveness. They may not ever ask for it. They may never own up to those ways that they have hurt you or harmed you. They may never ask. They may never admit. Are you willing to forgive them anyway? Because that is the forgiveness that Jesus has shown to us. He didn't wait. 
for us to ask forgiveness. He didn't wait for us to admit fault. He said, as far as it's up to me, I release you of this debt. As far as it's up to me, I am at peace with you. Whether you like it or not, whether you want it or not, that is what I offer to you. And so you can pray for someone, you can forgive them without even ever having to interact with them. But that third and final step, whatever it looks like in your life, in this relationship, whatever healthy boundaries need to be, once you've prayed for someone and forgiven them, I encourage you to reach out. A text, an email, a phone call, going for coffee. Take that first step. Let them know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I want to be at peace with you. And then see where things go from there. Paul is given these marching orders in Romans chapter 12. And he's uh, said it this way, 1218. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. One of my favorite verses as well because of how many qualifications need to come with this, right? So am I trying to say that it's easy to live at peace with others? I'm not trying to say that at all. And Paul knew this was the reality as well. That's why he says, if possible, because it takes two people. You can pray for someone, you can forgive someone, you can reach out and they can say, get lost. And that's okay. You've done what you could to be at peace. He says, if possible, as far as it's up to you, make sure that you are doing your part. Make sure that you are initiating. Make sure that you are forgiving. As much as it is up to you, live peaceably with all. And if we can do that in our relationships, because Jesus has done that in our relationship with him, then we will be living as true citizens of the kingdom of peace, reigned and ruled by the prince of peace. This matters. It makes a difference to how we live at peace with others here today. So Merry Christmas. I hope that we have a wonderful time celebrating the truth that Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh to be with his people, to deliver his people from their sins, to make peace with his people, you and me included. And may we truly be citizens of this kingdom, people of this Prince of Peace who live like they want that kingdom to come in its fullness right here and right now by making peace with others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the creator. And you created us to be in relationship with you. And when we broke that, and as we continue to struggle with the, with the weight of sin in our lives, God, you continue to forgive you extend us grace, mercy, forgiveness, and ultimately peace so that one day we can dwell with you fully and completely. One day we can dwell with each other fully and completely. And God, may our lives and the life of our church be in accordance with that prayer, that we would live in such a way to see your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And may all that we remember and celebrate at Christmas be a reminder of this peace that we are to be living in and offering to those around us. 